for one of the best deals in town, swing by Walters for brunch. For just $20, you can add bottomless Bloody Marys, mimosas, Trulies, and Bud Lights with a purchase of an entree. On Saturday, Euro matches of Wales, Denmark, and Italy, Austria. Saturday night, Walters is showing the Tank Davis-Mario Barrios pay-per-view fight. Sunday, the round of 16 in the Euros gets going. Make your reservation for a busy weekend at waltersdc.com slash reservation. When you do come to Walters, make sure to check out their spicy chicken. Cold beer, a great sandwich with fries, and a big screen TV is a tough combo to beat. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And the 0-1 to Schwarber. Breaking ball hit in the air to deep left field. This is way back. Going, going, going. Goodbye. An opposite field line drive. Three-run homer for Kyle Schwarber. His 19th of the year. A game-tying three-run blast to the top of the fifth inning. The runners go the 3-2. Swing a high fly ball. Left center field deep. This one way back. It may go. It is gone. It's a grand slam to left center for Josh Bell. Nationals 11. The Phillies 9. It'll be a 1-1 to Castro. The kick here it comes. Swing and a line drive. Base hit into right center field. This is going to score two runs. Herrera's throwing home. Harrison scores behind Bell on a single to right center. And two runs batted in for Sterling Castro with his third hit of the game and second and third RBIs. If you can believe it, it's now the Nationals 13 and the Phillies 12. Outfield deep and playing him the opposite way. Harrison is shallower, though, and left. 2-1 pitch. Swung on line drive. Caught by Jordy Mercer in the hole at second. And a curly W and a sweep of the two-game series is in the books. Paolo Espino notches a save here at the bottom of the ninth inning. And welcome to Nats Chat for Thursday, June 24th, 2021, along with Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman of MassInSports.com. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. What is it about things on June 23rds of years? On the 10-year anniversary, June 23rd, 2011, of the bizarro resignation of Jim Riggleman, the Nationals have one of the wackiest, one of the looniest games you will ever see, but it ends up being another Nationals win, a 13-12 win at the Philadelphia Phillies on Wednesday afternoon, a nine-inning game that lasted for four hours, 19 minutes, a game that featured the two teams combining for 25 runs, 27 hits, 
and 14 walks. The two teams combined to use 14 pitchers. The game is the first in the history of Major League Baseball in which each team hits a grand slam and has a three-run homer. Jordy Mercer was spitting up blood in the ninth inning. We had a game like this on Tuesday night, Mark, and less than 24 hours later, an even crazier game, and yet another win for the Nationals, whose rise continues. Oh, this one puts Tuesdays to shame, Al. You know, I mean, <laughs> I mean, think about everything you just described there, and I'll add even more to it, okay? Juan Soto went 0 for 4, grounded into his career-high 12th double play, and the Nationals still scored 13 runs, okay? Brad Hand was not available because he had pitched for the last five days and desperately needed a day off. So the seventh reliever to come out of the pen for Davey Martinez with the game on the line is none other than the secret weapon, Paolo Espino. He may not be a secret weapon to us because we've been on him from day one, but the rest of the league, he's still the secret weapon. And of course, he's the only pitcher who could actually throw strikes, get quick outs, not walk anybody, and lock down the first save of his career. Did it while his second baseman was bleeding from the lip. The second baseman ends up making the final out of the game, catching a line drive. This was everything you could ever possibly pack into four hours of baseball. And I don't know if I've ever seen anything quite like it. On top of it all, what did it do? It gave them their ninth win in 10 games. The Nationals are back, Al. They've won nine of 10. They are firmly back. And it's not just that they're winning games, but it's how they're doing it. I'm not in the clubhouse with them this year. But I can guarantee you there is a vibe going on in there that probably resembles what was going on in 2019. Well, as Davey likes to say, the boys are battling and the boys be battling on Wednesday afternoon. Nats overcame deficits of 5 nothing in the fifth inning, 9-5 in the sixth inning, 12-11 in the ninth inning. The Nats scored 11 runs over the fifth and sixth innings. And you mentioned them, our guy, our pal, Paolo Espino, on whom we were on months ago, forget about weeks ago. And in case you don't know, Davey Martinez did christen Paolo Espino with a nickname during Davey's post-game press conference, the secret weapon. Yeah, Espino, who's basically pretty much our, our secret weapon. I mean, he comes in and, you know, the one guy that I know, you know, it's going to go out there and pump strikes. Paolo Espino, a 10th round draft choice of the Cleveland Indians in the 2006 MLB draft, finally gets his first career save on Wednesday off just, uh, what, a few uh, weeks ago, whatever it was, getting his first career win. A week ago. A week ago. There you go. A week ago. Espino now has a nickname, The Secret Weapon. So yes, the Paolo Espino t-shirts better be coming from our guy, Tim Shovers. In any event, by the way, we do have a new shipment of Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts on the way, including, as has been requested, double XL. So you can get your Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts by going to Nats Chat Podcast dot square dot site random question though because i'm fascinated by what happened with mercer again spitting up blood in the bottom of the ninth inning there were two outs jt real muto grounder eats up mercer who gets charged with an error on a failed attempt at a backhanded stab and the ball came up and hit him in the face and he is spitting out some blood right now had mercer had to leave the game the only remaining position player on the dad's bench was catcher jan gomes what would the nats have done what would the infield alignment had been had Mercer had to come out of the game. So here's what Davey told Jordy Mercer as they're checking on him. Says, if you need to come out, we can put Jan Gomes at third, which means Castro to second. And Mercer's response to that was, I'll just swallow the blood. (laughs) So he wasn't coming out of that game. He wasn't going to take a chance with Jan Gomes at third base with two outs in the ninth of a 13 to 12 game. He was going to stay in there and swallow as much blood as necessary before catching the final out. I mean, 
what a gutsy performance by him, by this whole team. And you know what I was thinking? We, we talked so much this year about their lack of depth and how they really are built on their star power. Look how they won this game, Al. This was with depth. They won this game with the depth in their bullpen, with the depth of their lineup and the depth of their bench, right down to the 26th man in Jordy Mercer playing a key role at the end of this game. Good for them because we've kind of questioned whether they have the depth to truly contend. And I don't know if in the long run they will or not, but in this game, and I think we've seen a little bit more of it here recently as the team's gotten hot, you are seeing more guys contribute, and it's not just the same handful of stars on the team. That's a T-shirt right there. I'll just swallow the blood, a Jordy (laughs) Mercer T-shirt. We can get that going perhaps at some point. Well, the Nationals end up going 5-1 and one over a big six-game stretch against the Mets and Phillies. Can't say enough about that. Sweep the two-game series at the Phillies. There were so many heroes for the Nationals on Wednesday afternoon. You know, you could sort of put all the names in a hat and pick whoever you want in terms of who you start with. But why don't we go ahead and start with Josh Bell, who has not had a very good season. At times, it's looked like he's coming on, and then he kind of settles back down. But Josh Bell delivered, and delivered big time on Wednesday afternoon. Starting first baseman in both games in this series, we did not see Ryan Zimmerman start a game. Haven't seen much of Zim lately. Bell, again, the cleanup batter, two for four with a grand slam, a key single, and a walk. All of the bases loaded struggles for the Nationals this season, and it's not like this grand slam makes all the bases loaded struggles go bye-bye, but a huge hit with the bases juiced. Bell smashing a two-out full count grand slam to left center in the Nats' six-run, six-inning, despite having been down in the count at one point, 0-2. I've mentioned this. There's something about Josh Bell. This season, you can look it up, his numbers with two strikes are actually really good, surprisingly good, given the season he's having. In this spot, he goes from down 0-2 to working the count full to then belting a huge grand slam and obviously a big inning, that six-run, six-inning, the homer going a projected 401 feet per stat cast. And Bell had the leadoff single in that Nationals oh-so-crucial two-run ninth to go also with a two-out full count walk in the bottom of the fifth inning. There haven't been many big games for Josh Bell this season, but this was a massive one on Wednesday. As Davey put it, this is the day that he became a national. That made him a national right there. I mean, that really did make him a national. And, you know, I think that's fair to say, and you could tell that it meant something to Josh. That home run, the grand slam, that was a great at bat, like you just outlined, to go from 0-2. And he has been good with two strikes this year. And he hit that ball the other way with authority like that. And you mentioned the bases loaded struggles. And as a team, they've been awful. You know who their best hitter with the bases loaded has been? Josh Bell, four for 10, hitting 400 with the bases loaded. So go figure that one. I don't know how to explain it. But for whatever reason, he's been the one who has actually delivered in those spots when so many others have not. That was a great at bat. And how about the bat flip? I mean, that was a defiant flip of the bat. Now, he insisted that it wasn't premeditated, wasn't calculated. He said he's got a lot of pine tar in the bat, so he had to kind of like flip it around to even be able to get it off his hands. But that had to feel good for him and for the team. I mean, they scored 11 runs in two innings after getting shut out for the first four. 11 runs in two innings. They, they scored 13 runs in this game, and Kyle Schwarber's three-run homer is almost an afterthought in it. Just a remarkable stretch there. And The other good thing about it is they took advantage of all the walks. The Phillies relievers were terrible. And how many times this year have we talked about the Nats are just not patient enough? They're not drawing their walks. Well, in those two innings alone, they drew one, two, three, four, five, six, seven walks in those two innings, and six of them came around to score. That's how you do it. That was excellent. It was wonderful to see something like that. 
You know, it's so funny, though. You score 11 runs over the fifth and sixth innings, and yet you could argue neither inning was the most important inning in the game because you still had to rally to win in the top of the ninth inning and rally the Nationals did. And how about that rally in that ninth inning? I mentioned the Bell leadoff single. You get a single from Josh Harrison. You then get a perfectly executed sacrifice bunt. I mean, I'm not in love with the sacrifice bunt, but if you're going to do it, that's how you do it. What Alex Avila did in that top of the ninth inning that perfectly executed sack bunt to advance runners from first and second to second and third, setting up Starlin Castro's one out, go ahead, two run single. Yes, I said Starlin Castro, who on Wednesday went three for four with a walk and three runs batted in. He had an RBI double in the five run fifth inning. He had that huge one out, two run, go ahead single in the Nationals two-run ninth inning. Some big hits for Castro. He's actually had a decent number of doubles lately, which has been interesting and encouraging, but huge hit for Castro in that spot. And the sack bunt ends up working out to perfection because while sack bunts do almost always lower your run expectancy, you know, context matters. And with a guy like Castro coming up, who's not exactly known for hitting for power, if you want to play it so that a single will score two runs, you say, all right, that's what Castro does. I think there's actually a justification for Davey doing as he did there with Avila putting down the sack bunt. The bunt could not have been better from Avila and credit to Castro for delivering. Yeah, exactly. I think because, you know, remember who your batter is, Alex Avila, your backup catcher. Now they had Dome still on the bench as the only man left. And in theory, you could have put him up there instead. But I give them credit that they saw here's an opportunity down a run. Let's let a weak hitter bunt the ball, move both runners in the scoring position. And now you've got Castro, you know, good contact guy. You're just telling him, get the ball in the air, get the runner home. And that's what he said he was trying to do. His whole focus in that at bat was get the ball in the air. And he wound up doing what we've been pleading with him to do so much this year. He didn't just like throw the bat at the ball. Like he actually took a nice stride and like a good solid swing and lined it over the second baseman's head. Contact is important. Yes. But there needs to be something behind it. It can't just be weak. Just flip the bat out. And next thing you know, you're just like dribbling a ground ball or popping it up on the infield. And we've seen him do that too many times this year. So that was like a good, solid. I mean, he didn't crush it, anything like that. But it was good, solid contact up the middle in the air to get the run home. And then, oh, by the way, it scored the other run as well. And so now they take the lead on one swing. So I'll admit I was a little nervous. I mean, I agreed with the bunting of Avila except you're now setting it up for Castro and Robles, your two weakest hitters, to get the job done. Well, those two got the job done in the fifth inning with back-to-back RBI hits, and then obviously Castro got the job done in the ninth. That was by far his best game of the season. Yeah, great to see Castro do that. You mentioned Robles. He did have you know at least a decent game, offensively speaking, that RBI single in the five-run fifth. He had a one-out five-pitch walk in the six-run six. You saw Josh Harrison contribute with a single and a walk in the game. And, you know, you said it almost was like an afterthought, and it is, but, you know, we shouldn't not mention it. We certainly shouldn't not highlight it. Kyle Schwarber, another home run on Wednesday. Schwarber again in that leadoff spot. He goes one for four with a three-run homer, a walk, and three strikeouts. A one-out, three-run opposite field homer to left field that tied the game at five in that Nationals five-run fifth inning. Like, in the moment, that seemed like it was going to prove to be the biggest hit of the game. Little did we know, Schwarber now 10 home runs over his last 12 games. He, during that stretch, has raised his slugging percentage for the season by an incredible 115 points. I mean, you almost never see guys do something like this. He went from slugging 404 to now 519. And what I find especially interesting, Mark, about Schwarber lately 
He's hitting a lot of homers to the opposite field. For the longest while, it felt like every home run he had went to right field. That's not the case lately. A lot of homers to left, left center. We see another one of those on Wednesday. Right. He's driving the outside pitch the other way. And that's a great sign because it's not, you know, early in the year, you had the big walk-off homers, the Schwar bombs, which were just towering classic pull it to right field homers. What he's doing now is hitting the ball with authority the other way. He's taking what the pitchers are giving him. Obviously, the pitchers know you got to be careful with him. This guy's on a tear right now, so don't come in on him. So they're trying to stay away from him. And what's he doing? He's still showing that he can drive those pitches to the opposite field. So that's huge. He's now out third in the National League in homers. It's Tatis Acuna Schwarber. Okay. He's got 19 homers. That is equal to Trey Turner, Juan Soto, and Victor Robles combined. (laughs) Now, that's a bit of a reflection of what those guys have been doing, especially Soto and Robles, who has zero on the year. But Kyle Schwarber is like on a 40-plus homer pace right now after 71 games. And remember, he missed the first six games of the year when he was on the COVID list. This is an all-time run that he's on, and you just hope that he can keep it going as long as possible. It's not going to last forever, not like this but you hope he can keep it going and that they take advantage of it. And thankfully, they're winning these games. They're making the most of those home runs. Yeah, and and I think, look, Schwarber inevitably is going to calm down, but the notion of him finishing the season with, say, 35 homers in a 500 slugging percentage, I mean, I think that's more than doable. And if he does that, this contract is a win. This ends up being a good signing. Schwarber ends up doing what you wanted, especially when you factor in, he's given you a nice uh, left field this season. He's done a good job out there. Uh, despite his defensive reputation. So right now, that this is shaping up into being a really shrewd one-year contract given out by Mike Rizzo in the offseason. I also do want to make mention of Trey Turner, who had a big game. Again, it's easy to look over some of these things with all that happened, but Trey Turner had three hits on Wednesday. Had a double, two singles, and a walk. He reached base four times, one out double, top of the fourth, one out single, bottom of the fifth, two out, two run single, and that six run six, one out, seven pitch walk, in the top of the eighth inning. So nice to see Trey do as he did. And like you said, it is remarkable, and it says a lot about a lot. The Nats score 13 runs despite Juan Soto going 0 for 4 with a walk and hitting into another double play. This has been such a weird season for so many reasons, but like this is another one of those things of you have this dynamic offensive performance, and yet your best hitter really doesn't do much in the game. And this has happened more than once. We've we've seen them win in spite of Soto. Now, he did hit one ball really well in the fourth inning, crushed a line drive to right 113 miles an hour off the bat. He just didn't get under it enough, and that's been the whole issue, not elevating. But I still thought that was a a fairly decent sign if he's at least pulling a ball with that kind of authority. Maybe eventually he's going to get under it a little bit more. But that double play grounder, at a point in the game that this is still a critical point that they need those extra runs late in a close game, that was a killer double play. It's his 12th of the season, the most he's ever hit, and we're only 71 games in. I keep saying it can't last forever, that he's too good, he works too hard, he cares too much for this to continue. And it's, I do keep wondering, is there something still going on with his shoulder? Is that preventing it? It would seem like if he was physically right, that this wouldn't still be happening, that he and Kevin Long would have figured out the mechanical tweak to make in his swing so that he starts hitting the ball in the air. It has not happened yet, not with any consistency. I don't know. Eventually, for this team to get to where they need to go, he's going to have to be part of it. I just cannot imagine them scoring enough runs on a daily basis without Juan Soto playing a huge role in it. They've been fortunate to get by without it for a while here, but sooner or later, he's got to turn into Juan Soto again. 
His slugging percentage for the season continues to creep toward his on-base, which is never a good thing, although his on-base is really good, 402, but he's slugging just 423. I mean, for comparison's sake, Soto last season, yes, it was a short season, but he slugged 695 in 2020. He's down to 423 this year. The last full season for him, 2019, he slugged 548. So 125 points worse is Soto this season in terms of that slugging percentage. Clearly, he's better than that, but obviously, it's taking a while for him to get to where we know he can be from a power-hitting standpoint this season. Hey guys, Al Galdi here to tell you about FanDuel. It's great to be in the midst of baseball season. Nothing like watching a game. Great weather, cold drink, and a little action on FanDuel Sportsbook. If you have never bet on baseball before, now is the perfect time to give that a shot. FanDuel is letting new users swing for the fences risk-free as you'll get up to $1,000 back if your first bet doesn't win. And once you have an account, you can get up to $25 back each day if your same-game parlay bet falls one leg short. This way, you can combine multiple baseball bets for an even bigger win all season long. There's a reason that FanDuel Sportsbook is America's number one sportsbook. The app is simple to use. It's got great odds on all different betting markets, unique fun bet types like same-game parlay and always-on promotions to let you get more action out of every game day. And when you win, FanDuel will pay you your winnings in as little as 24 hours. Just download the FanDuel Sportsbook app and sign up with promo code CHAT to get in on the action. That's FanDuel Sportsbook. Promo code chat. Games on Thursday afternoon include Oakland at Texas at 205. Starting for the Rangers, Colby Allard, 23-year-old lefty, has really made a strong case to stay in the Rangers rotation off making the move from the bullpen. His ERA for the season is at 293. Ride the Rangers. 21 plus in present Colorado, Iowa, Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, or West Virginia. First on my real money wager, only for risk-free bet. Refund issued as non-withdrawable site. Credit that expires in seven days. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanal.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-9-WITH in Indiana. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-GAMBLER New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Virginia. Tennessee, 1-800-889-9789, or in West Virginia, visit www.1800gambler.net. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now the pitch. Swing and a drive to deep right. Way back, this may go, and it is gone goodbye. A three-run home run for Travis Jankowski on an 0-2 pitch. 
the national starting pitcher on Wednesday was Eric Fetty. He was on a roll unlike no other in his major league career. And Eric Fetty came back down to earth on Wednesday afternoon. You might say that Eric Fetty remembered that he's Eric Fetty on Wednesday. But I think the key here is, was this a return to the guy Fetty had been? Or was this a mere speed bump, a mere hiccup, a mere flesh wound from which Eric Fetty responds quite nicely? I think that's going to be the tell. Is this the start of a decline back to where he's been? Or is this just one of these things that happens over the course of a season, a good pitcher having a bad outing? But this was not a good outing for Fetty in this 13-12 win at the Phillies on Wednesday afternoon. Five runs and four innings. He gave up six hits, which were two homers, a double, and three singles. He issued three walks. He had just one strikeout. I mean, that had been one of the really nice things about Fetty's rise. He had become more of a strikeout pitcher. Wednesday, this was like, you know, 2018, 2019, 2020 Fetty, which is not a lot of strikeouts. Didn't exactly pound the zone either. 45 strikes versus 29 balls over 74 pitches. Gave up the big three-run homer to Travis Jankowski, the GOAT from that uh, game earlier this season between the Nats and Phils. It was Jankowski who Avila tagged from running from home plate all the way to between second and third for the final out of a Friday night game. Runner gets caught off second. The best rundown play is when you never throw the baseball. And the catcher out to the shortstop position, deked and faked, and eventually ran him down himself and tagged him out. But Jankowski launching a bomb to right field on an 0-2 pitch, big three-run homer in the bottom of the second inning. Fetty giving up a one-out solo homer by, yes, Bryce Harper to left center, despite Bryce having been down in that count at 1.12, that coming in the bottom of the third inning. And then Fetty giving up another run, bottom of the fourth, leadoff double by Jankowski, who, by the way, had a big game on Wednesday. And then a one-out first pitch RBI single by the Philly starting pitcher, Vince Velasquez. So disappointing to see Fetty as he did. Like I said, I think the question is, what do we see from Fetty moving forward? This was just not good in any way, <laughs> the the outing. It just wasn't commanding, like you said, the walks, giving up the long bombs. Although I thought the Jankowski, the three-run homer, was on a fairly decent pitch. It was 0-2 pitch on a cutter. It was inside. It was like not even over the plate, inside the corner. Uh, and he was able to turn on it. So maybe not the worst pitch there, but the walks were bad. The homer to Harper was bad. Bryce owns him. They used to be high school teammates, remember, in Las Vegas. Bryce owns him. I think it's now four homers and eight at-bats against him in his career. Just a bad matchup for him. And the pitch count was high. There was just nothing going on in this one. So like you said, the next one is the key, and that should be Monday against the Mets. This is the makeup game from those three that were coveted out to begin the season. They already made up one of them in the doubleheader last week. Now the Mets are coming into town for one game on Monday. That'll be Fetty's spot. So that's a big start for him, both for the team, because it's a big game against the Mets, but for him to show that this one was the anomaly and that the stretch he had been on prior to this was not the anomaly. That's going to be an important start for him. And then there was the Nats bullpen, which has been so good lately, was not good, though, on Wednesday. I mean, eventually this was going to happen. You weren't going to keep having multiple relievers game in, game out, be locked down. And locked down, the pen was not on Wednesday afternoon. Seven, yes, seven Nationals relievers end up being utilized. They combined to allow seven runs in five innings. Kyle McGowan, Wander Suero, Sam Clay, Justin Miller, Austin Voth, Tanner Rainey, and our guy, the Rolades Relief Man of the Year, Paolo Espino, <laughs> uh, end up being the seven relievers used by the Nats. They weren't all bad, but enough guys were bad. It starts with Kyle McGowan, who is a complete disaster in a four-run Phillies fifth inning, during which he gave up four runs, recorded two outs. What was so painful 
is that McGowan retired each of the first two batters he faced, including striking out Brad Miller on three pitches for the second bats. You say, all right, we're in business with McGowan. And then came just this unraveling. Two-out single by Alec Bohm, despite him being down in the count at 1.12. Two-out single by Travis Jankowski. Again, he had a big game on Wednesday. Also had a stolen base in the inning. Two-out five-pitch walk of Ronald Torres. And then the big blow. The two-out pinch hit grand slam by Andrew McCutcheon to left field. And then McGowan issued a two-out hit by pitch of Odubel Herrera. So McGowan was a mess in that fifth inning. Yet big-time problems with Austin Voth and Tanner Rainey in that Phillies two-run eighth inning. Both of the runs charged to Voth, although both of the runs scoring with Rainey on the mound. I want to save our Paolo conversation for just a bit, but in terms of the bad from the bullpen, it was bad. But like I said, Mark, I kind of felt like this is going to happen. You can't keep using relievers all the time and expect them to always be great. Well, this was like the worst case scenario, Al. Everything, even going into it, before any of them took the mound, they were already behind the eight ball. Let's explain why. Brad Hand wasn't available, pitching four times in five days, so you knew he was out. So everybody's got to slot up a little bit because of that. Now he's got to use guys in situations that maybe they aren't always accustomed to. Now remember, Daniel Hudson's on the I.L. and Kyle Finnegan's on the I.L. So that's essentially two of your top setup men and your closer are not available for you today. So you've got to now piece this together. And then your starter, Fetty, only goes four. So you're now going to have to get five innings from this makeshift group of relievers. And when the first guy, McGowan, can't get through his first inning, despite getting the first two outs, and then lets the entire inning unravel from there, that is what set everything else into motion. And I know there were people asking, why did he let McGowan go as far as he did? Why didn't he replace him? The problem was, I think Davey understood, he's got five innings to cover today, and he doesn't have his best guys available to him. The pitcher spot's going to be coming up in that next inning, and he really needs to get McGowan through that inning, so then he can use Swero for a full inning after that. And what wound up happening, it got to the point he had no choice, he had to pull him, and now Swero enters to face one batter, throws two pitches, gets out of the inning, that's great, but then they had to pinch hit for him the next inning. So now you've just burned him up. So it just... One thing led to another, and it was like this perfect worst-case convergence of events that resulted in all this. Now, that doesn't excuse the performances. Austin Voth needed to be better than he was. Tanner Rainey needed to be better than he was, although it was a couple of ground ball singles. It wasn't like super hard contact off him. Although, again, I think he had two strikes on some of these guys. One of them was an 0-2 pitch, if I remember right. Here's another problem is that they have no off days. They're in a stretch now of 20 games in 20 days. And, yeah, Hand will be available Thursday in Miami, but how many of these other guys are going to need to have the day off? It's setting up to be a problem. And this is where I kept saying the bullpen was at its best over the last two weeks when the rotation was pitching deep into games. They go hand in hand. When your starter only gives you four like Fetty did, and then you already have guys who aren't available to you, it just creates almost a no-win situation for them. Yeah. And this is where that COVID-19 situation from early in the season, I think finally does come back to hurt the Nats from a standpoint of They really could use that off day this Monday, and they're not going to have it. They're going to have to play this game against the Mets. It's going to be a weird situation. Nats have a four-game series upcoming at the Miami Marlins. Then you have one game against the Mets on Monday. Then you have a two-game series against Tampa Bay, and then a four-game series against the Dodgers. But it's a weird scenario here. It's literally going to be like a one-game series against the Mets on Monday. You really could use that off day, and instead, you're not going to have it. And so unless we get a rainout or something like that, the Nats don't have an off day now until the All-Star break. In a bullpen that, you know, for so much of the season has been operating on fumes, I mean, I, I don't know how you expect that to change. And 
Oh, by the way, starting the opener against the Marlins on Thursday night will be Joe Ross, not exactly an innings eater. And then after that is John Lester, not exactly an innings eater. And then after that is Patrick Corbin, not exactly an innings eater this season. So close your eyes and hide the women and children in terms of what the bullpen usage could end up being over these next few days. Maybe we're pleasantly surprised. You never know. But I think this is a concern here looking forward. Now, with our guy, Paolo Espino, locking things down as he did in that bottom of the ninth inning. First career save, ERA down to 220 on the season. Davey Martinez during his postgame presser calling Paolo the secret weapon. We joke about Paolo. We have fun regarding Paolo, but it is true. He works quickly. He throws strikes. He gets outs. And at this point, especially with Hudson still on the 10-day injured list, with this fatigued state of the bullpen, you know, Brad Hand being used a ton, et cetera, why not more Espino in high leverage situations? I mean, there's a sentence I never thought I'd say, but <laughs> we're not kidding anymore here. This guy's good. How about more of him in big spots? Well, I think it's clear he is one of their most effective relievers. I mean, I don't think you can dispute that at this point. And what he does, like you just said, is he throws strikes. He doesn't mess around. He goes right after. He threw eight pitches in the scoreless bottom of the ninth. They were all fastballs. He didn't even go to the curveball at any point. And he's facing the heart of the Phillies lineup. Hoskins, Harper, Real Muto. And he gets Hoskins to fly out on the first pitch and Harper to fly out on the first pitch. Should have gotten out of it on Real Muto, except the bad hop that took out Mercer's lip. And then he gets Miller to line out. But when you have big-time hitters see a 90-mile-an-hour fastball from a righty, their eyes light up, and they're going to go after the first one they see. And because he places it well, he's not putting them right down the middle. He's locating well. He's going to get ahead in the count. He's not going to give the hitters into a, a good count for them. It can be effective. And so I actually thought there was a point in this game where you could say, actually, he should have come in, I don't know which inning, the sixth or the seventh, and let him go multiple innings and give a bunch of other guys a day off because he was more than fresh to do that. Remember, he started for Scherzer, which is like six days ago, and he hasn't pitched since then. So he was good to go multiple innings if needed. Now, I guess Davey tried to play the matchups in the end, but I absolutely think he has earned the right to pitch in more situations of consequence. And sometimes you're a victim of your own success because he's so versatile, because you can use him in any situation and he's the guy who can come in when something goes wrong early in a game. You tend to want to save him for those and not put him into big spots late. But at this point, I trust him more than a lot of other relievers who are entrusted with big innings late in games. And maybe that'll change over time. Maybe hitters will figure him out. Maybe this is a mirage. But right now, I trust Paolo Espino more than I trust several members of that bullpen who do get to pitch late innings. I also think with Espino, there is a dynamic here. And I mean, I'm kind of trying to read a mind, but if you're Paolo Espino and you were a 10th round pick in the 2006 draft and entering this season, you had neither a career regular season win nor a career regular season save. What do you have to lose? You know? You come into these games, you know you don't throw 98. Why not just throw strikes and just do what you feel like you need to do? Like, the nickname for now is the secret weapon. I almost feel like you could call Paolo Espino Yolo Espino. You know, you only live once. He's got nothing to lose here. Okay, it's a guy in his 30s, 10th round pick 15 years ago. Why not? Just go out there and do as you want to do, man. You have nothing to lose. And I think there's something very empowering about that. You know, it's always a great stage of life that you get to where you stop caring about what other people think. You stop caring about how others are going to evaluate you. And you you just kind of do you. And if you're Paolo Espino, why not just do you? 
You know, you're not Tanner Rainey and, you know, you're trying to locate your 99-mile-per-hour fastball and you're trying to get your career to where you feel like you could end up going. You're Paolo Espino. You're in your 30s. You got taken in the 10th round 15 years ago. Why not have some fun, throw some strikes, and just see what happens? I feel like that maybe is Paolo's mantra when he goes out to the mound. Let's just see what happens. And so far, what's happened is he's got an ERA of 220 on the season. Al, if you could have seen the joy in his face when he walked into the Zoom room to talk to us afterwards on his first career save. And he like it started like process when he realized what the last week has been like for him. First career win, starting in place of Max Scherzer. First career save opportunity, let alone actually getting the save. And he's doing it for a team that's just won nine out of 10. There was pure joy in his face. He is having the time of his life. This is the culmination of a long and winding path for him that he never expected would reach this point. I agree with you 100%. He has nothing to lose. And if I'm Davey Martinez, I'm going to use that up as much as I can, get everything I can out of it. Maybe it won't last, but what's the harm in finding out what you've got and ride that wave as long as you can? Absolutely. Well, next up for the Nationals, four-game series at the Miami Marlins, Thursday night through Sunday afternoon. Game one starter, Joe Ross. Game two, John Lester. Game three, Patrick Corbin. Game four, Max Scherzer. We are taping this early Wednesday evening. The Marlins set to play on Wednesday night. But as we tape this right now, it's so odd. And this National League East has been so odd this season. The Marlins are last in the NL East, have been for a while. But the Marlins have the best run differential in the NL East, plus 17 on the season going into their game on Wednesday night. Just to give you an idea of just how underwhelming this National League East division continues to be. Last season, the Marlins did well, relatively speaking, despite a horrendous run differential. This season, the Marlins are doing very poorly, despite actually a pretty good run differential. I mean, they certainly don't scare you, especially offensively. This is a series in which the Nationals should be able to get, I mean, to me, at least two wins. I really would love to see the Nats take three or four, as they just did against the Mets. But, you know, a chance here to get some more victories and maybe come out of this set above 500 for the first time in a long time. Well, if they do it, it's going to have to be with pitching because the Marlins do pitch fairly well. And that ballpark is cavernous. You're not hitting the ball out of that yard unless you hit some schwar bombs at 450 feet, even with the fences having been brought in a little bit a few years ago. So to me, this is going to be a real test for the pitching staff against, like you said, a weak Marlins lineup to hold them down. And now can the offense do what they did on Wednesday? And that's not just hit the big home run, but hit the two run single, the two out single, sustain rallies, take advantage of walks, all that kind of stuff. That's how I think they're going to have to win these games. And I agree. I think three out of four has got to be the mindset. I know they're not going to think that's go one and oh every day, but you go in to face. Really, this is the only weak opponent they're facing until the all-star break. You've got to make the most of that opportunity and take care of business against them this weekend. We have talked about the Nationals not hitting for enough power this season. The Marlins come into games on Wednesday slugging as a team 369 on the year. I mean, that is horrendous. And the team on base percentage on the season, 301. I mean, just putrid, okay? Spider tack or not, those numbers are terrible. So Nationals pitching, hopefully, off a uh, rough game on Wednesday can get back on track against the Marlins. And obviously, love to see the offense keep doing as it has been doing in these recent games. Well, I mentioned it at the top of the show. June 23rd is the anniversary of one of the strangest days in Nationals history, the stunning resignation of Jim Riggleman in the midst of a winning streak 
off a walk-off victory over the Seattle Mariners, Jim Riggleman stunningly resigns after a win on a Thursday afternoon. I guess we can use this as the uh, launching pad here. There have been a number of strange days in the Nationals' time as a Washington, D.C. Major League Baseball team, right? We've had the Game 5 losses. We had the famous Dusty Baker mold press conference regarding Steven Strasburg, all kinds of other things as well. Of all of the strange days and strange occurrences, where does the day of the Riggleman resignation rank for you, having covered this team since it came to D.C.? So I've said this before, and I even said this before the 2019 run and after it, and people don't always believe me when I tell them this, especially if they weren't around at that time. That is still, to me, the craziest day in Nationals history, certainly the craziest 72 hours when you combine what happened that day with what happened the next day, the aftermath of it. It was so unexpected. It was maybe the first time that the Nationals as an organization became like the talk of baseball. They were not a good team and not really paid attention to by the rest of the sport, aside from maybe Strasburg's debut in 2010. So they were not a good team in 2011. They weren't supposed to be a good team, but they were starting to come together. And then all of a sudden they go on one of these runs, kind of like what the current team is doing. And they won 10 of 11 and they get over 500. And this is a big deal for this team at that point to be over 500 well into June. And what we didn't know is that behind the scenes, Riggleman who had been upset with his contract status for a while. He was essentially on a series of one-year contracts with no guarantee beyond that. He had reason to believe that he wasn't going to be retained no matter what happened. And that may be true that that was the case. And he felt like, okay, I need to get some answers. I need to get some security. And so he went into Mike Rizzo's office before that game and said, I want you to talk to me about picking up my option that he had on his contract for next year. And if you don't, I'm going to walk away. I'm going to resign after the game today. Now, I've said this for many years, and I still believe it. I think philosophically, he was right. He should have been in a better position, more job security. He shouldn't have been left in that spot where he really was a placeholder manager for a team that was waiting to start to win and then replace him with somebody with more experience or somebody they thought could take him to the next level. But his method for going about it had no chance of working. None. (laughs) Mike Rizzo is not going to be bullied around like that, certainly. And in doing what he did, the whole baseball world is saying, this guy just walked away on his team in the middle of a winning streak. Why would I ever want to hire him now? And it took a long time. He finally got a job again with the Reds and wound up as their interim manager years later. But it did hurt his career. And so while I respect him and while I I understood what he was doing, I didn't think it had any chance of working. I thought his only hope was to play out the season, see how it went. And either one or two things would happen. The team would win and they'd have to retain him or they'd end up firing him anyways and he'd walk away and the rest of the baseball world would say, well, wait, that can't be his fault. He got a lot out of that team. Something must be going on behind the scenes. We should still look to hire this guy to be our manager. It was so strange, like you said, the Nats are doing well and then then this guy resigns. I think clearly he overplayed his hand. There's no doubt about that. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, all due respect, he is Jim Riggleman, okay? I mean, he's not Miller Huggins, and, you know, there was a limitation to the way he was going to be viewed. But I think looking back on it, it also was kind of the start of, I know for a lot of us who follow the team, this realization of there is kind of a weird thing here with this team and managers when it comes to paying managers, when it comes to having managers for any substantial time. And, you know, we certainly, really, this was crystallized with the whole Bud Black fiasco after the 2015 season where, you know, he's the guy the team wants, but because uh, the learners don't want to pay him what he wants, you know, you end up not getting him and they hired Dusty Baker and that worked out reasonably well, although certainly not exceptionally well. 
And it was just kind of like the beginning of that. Now, I think the way you just framed it, it wasn't just a learner's thing with Riggleman. It also was a Rizzo thing. I also remember at the time, this being said, that the plan was Davey Johnson, that Davey Johnson was like a senior advisor, if I remember correctly, to the organization. And he ended up getting a job after that interim stage there for John McLaren. So I guess, was that the thinking that Rizzo was eyeing Davey and and was eyeing Davey as the guy to do the thing that we see so often in baseball, which is you have one manager who kind of goes through all the losing. And then as the team is about to get good, you dump that guy and you get yourself a veteran. And then that veteran takes you to success. We saw this with the Detroit Tigers with Jim Leland years ago. Was that the plan always with Davey Johnson and the Nats? I think it was probably in Rizzo's mind a possibility, but I don't know if he knew for certain that Davey would want to do it. Remember, Davey hadn't managed in 10 years, and he went through some pretty serious health scares. If you remember what Davey Johnson physically looked like when he managed the Mets and then the Orioles, and then what he looked like when he came back to manage the Nationals, he lost a lot of weight. He had some very serious issues, and a lot of the energy was sapped from him. And I don't know if he knew if physically he was going to be able to hold up to the rigors of the job. And I think it's actually fair to question if he did. By the end of the 2013 season, he was kind of beaten down and worn down from it. And I think it may have affected his ability to really manage the team well down the stretch of that disappointing season. But in the moment, yeah, I think Mike Rizzo probably always hoped that he'd maybe have an opportunity to hire Davey to be his manager when his team was ready to win. The opportunity came up before he ever expected it would. Now, the follow-up 12, it was so incredibly bizarre. So this all happens, and the team has to get on a plane to fly to Chicago to play the White Sox. And they don't know who's going to manage. And they wind up with John McLaren, who was the bench coach and was a longtime Riggleman confidant and good friend of his. And McLaren agreed to manage the team for the weekend. But he said, I'm not going to do this long term. Once you find your manager, at least for the rest of the season, I'm going to walk away too, out of respect for Riggleman. So McLaren takes over. And that first night in Chicago, June 24th, is the wildest game. You, you thought that this game against the Phillies was wild. That game, the Nationals blew three saves in the game and still won. And it's only like happened five times in Major League history that that's been the case. And McLaren was ejected in the middle of the game, arguing a call and put on the biggest rant and tirade you've ever seen a manager put on, especially someone in an interim position. And so now because of the fluctuating staff, I very distinctly remember this, this moment in the sixth inning, whatever it was, where we had to ask who's in control right now, who's in charge of the team? Because the interim manager is just ejected. And I think there was a scenario where they didn't even have a bench coach for the one day or whoever it was, was like, was like Trent Jewett, who was just summoned just for the day. Like he, he wasn't around the team all. And it wound up being that Bo Porter, who was the third base coach, was in charge of the lineup. And Steve McCaddy, the pitching coach, was in charge of the pitchers. And they just kind of figured it out the rest of the way. <laughs> just this bizarre, like, who's actually in charge here? What What's the presidential line of succession at this point for this? And then all that happened at the end of a day in which Jim Riggleman had spent the night at Caddy's on Cordell and Bethesda, as he described it, solving the world's problems and meeting a lot of young ladies, and then went on the radio the next morning and talked all about it in just one of the all-time going down in a blaze of glory moments for what who we thought was the most mild-mannered, uninteresting, boring baseball person of all time. And he wound up going out in a blaze of glory. And as our producer, Tim Shovers, has uh, affectionately now referred to June 23rd as St. Caddy's Day. The Caddy's thing is the perfect punctuation mark to the whole thing because it's so random. Like you just said, it was so out of character. Jim Riggleman is a local, which I think matters too. Jim Riggleman is from the area, went to high school in the area. So there was an attachment to the area 
with Jim Riggleman, but that, that he spent his uh, last night or spent his first night off resigning as Nationals manager at Caddies and that there were photos of this and that that has become like a thing that everybody knows, that Jim Riggleman was at Caddies off resigning as Nationals manager, an all-timer. So yes, St. Caddies Day is how we refer to the Jim Riggleman anniversary. And I'll throw one more thing into the mix. June 23rd, 2011 was also the night of the 2011 NBA draft. For those who are combo Nationals and Wizards fans, the 2011 NBA draft may have been the worst of the many bad Wizards drafts under Ernie Grunfeld. Two first-round picks, the Wizards took Jan Vesely with the sixth overall pick. Hey, Fran Fischilla, you told us that this guy's going to win a slam dunk championship one day. Well, first of all, Stu, he's got great taste in women, but let's get to the reality. <laughs> he's a 6'11 energy guy. Chris Singleton with the number 18 overall pick blew it on two first-round picks. So on the same day Riggleman resigns, the Wizards completely blow it with two first-round picks in the NBA draft. Not a great day in the history of Washington, D.C. sports. Well, you tell us what you think, your memories of the St. Caddy's Day occurrence. That was Jim Riggleman resigning June 23rd, 2011. You can tweet us at Nats underscore chat. You can email us to NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget new shipment of Nats Chat Podcast t-shirts are coming, including larger size for you bigger Nationals fans. You can get your Nats Chat Pod t-shirt by going to NatsChatPodcast.square.site. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. What a last few days for the Nationals. Been great to have you aboard for the ride. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat Podcast. This has been brewing for a while. I've just felt uh, a little uncomfortable that I've been on a short leash here from the day I was named the interim manager to the next couple I was named the manager and spoken to him a couple times about, you know, can we talk about my contract? And, and uh, it was just said, no, we're not ready to do that. And so I spoke to him today and just mentioned that, you know, I thought it was it's worthy of a conversation, no ultimatums, just uh, worthy of a conversation to talk about, um, you know, when we get to Chicago on, on this plane trip after our game today that maybe we could meet and, and talk about it and um, you know if there's something I need to be doing different to allow myself to continue on here for next year and, and um, Mike who I respect greatly just basically said no I'm not not ready to do that and uh, so I said well then I'm not going to be going on that trip to Chicago and I had told him some time ago that there's going to be a point where I do come in and say you know what if, if we're not going to address it then I'm going to have to resign so you know it's internally in the office here I don't think it should catch anybody by surprise because I did mention this sometime to them.